Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. This is episode 51 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast and I'm your host, Hugo Che. If you listened to last week's episode, episode 50, I introduced my new co-host for the show, esteemed travel photographer Ralph Velasco. And starting with this episode, me and Ralph are interviewing together our guest for the week. Our guest for this week is Brian Cruikshank, who will uh, tell us about the importance of having somebody local, some kind of support or fixer, uh, when you're traveling to places where the infrastructure is not as developed as we are typically used to, or where language or cultural barriers might uh, get in the way of you getting the shots, the images that you want. So, for example, if you're traveling to a place like Cambodia, that Brian knows very well, you should definitely listen to this episode uh, because it's uh, packed full of uh, useful tips and advice. And if you want to know more about our guest or find links to the pages that we mentioned during our conversation, you should look at uh, ttim.photo forward slash 51. And now let's dive into our conversation with Brian Cruikshank. Enjoy! Hi, this is Ralph Velasco, and uh, you're listening to the Traveling Image Makers. I'm here with my good friends Hugo Che and Brian Crickshank, who will be our guest today. Brian, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Ralph. Hi, Hugo. Welcome to the show, Brian. And uh, thank hi, you, Ralph. Uh, it's great to have you here as a co-host. It's going to be our first interview together, and I'm sure it's going to to be great so welcome ryan welcome ralph thanks very much and uh hopefully the uh the audience will give me a, a little bit of a leeway since it is our first uh, interview that we're doing but uh brian welcome to the show uh, you and i have been friends for quite a while now and uh why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background as a uh, professional photographer sure so um I, I, I think it's important to say first that I started out as a traveler really before I I became a photographer. I have been traveling um, all over the world, uh, and at, at a certain point, I, I decided that, geez, I, I should probably be bringing a, a camera with me. I... I had been working in the media uh, as a as a journalist, um, and so I, I I have a background in both photojournalism and and writing. So I thought I would start taking a camera with me to to start documenting some of these fantastic places that I was that I was uh, experiencing. And through that, I I ended up uh, generating a, a, a body of work that I thought that perhaps someone would would be interested in. And at that point, I, um, I approached Lonely Planet. Uh, they were still owned by the Wheeler family at the time. And I was accepted as a, as a, a photographer for Lonely Planet. Uh, this was about 15 years ago and, uh, and was shooting for them. Um, still working in, in the media on, on my, on, on the other side, uh, writing, uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, my employer found out that I had become good with a camera, 
So they started um, sending me out to write stories and shoot the stories. So I guess they were getting uh, 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 a, a good bang for their buck. Um, about 10 years ago, I ended up getting accepted into Getty Images, and that's been a, a, a nice uh, a nice arrangement for me. And through that arrangement, I've, I've been published in lots of cool places. Uh, and then um, a couple of years ago, I started uh, doing things with, with you, Ralph, and leading photography tours, especially in Southeast Asia. And uh, that sort of brings me up to where I am today. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Number one, tell us briefly about the the Lonely Planet. I know a lot of our listeners are probably thinking that that would be something that they would love to do. Is that still a viable thing now that the the Wheeler family has sold, the, you know, the publication? Are you know, are you still working with Lonely Planet at all nowadays? In in sort of a a, a back end way, what happened was Lonely Planet had a stock agency, and it was called Lonely Planet Images. And Lonely Planet Images was sold to Getty Images. And so in, in that way, I'm still providing imagery to, uh, to Lonely Planet, but it's, it's through the relationship with Getty Images. And now okay, Lonely so- Planet, I, I, I don't remember who owns it now. Um, I think it's, uh, it was sold to a large company and then it was sold to, uh, to somebody else. So I, I don't know who owns it now. Yeah. And so let's talk about Getty Images, because I know that's something that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of. Uh, Tell us what's involved in becoming a a Getty Images photographer. It would be like any getting into any other managed uh, library. Uh, There's an approvals process. You you fill out uh, an application, you you submit images and they um, then they usually want to see more images and they want to see more images and they want to see more images. They, they, they want to make sure that you have a, um, a body of work that goes well beyond just a few good images. They want to see consistency. Uh, they want to see variety. Um, and they want to see uh, technical expertise. And so um, if, if you have all of those things, then you can be accepted into the library. It's a managed library, so I really don't have to do much of anything except uh, send my images in, and they, uh, they they put them in the library, and they do all the marketing for me. And um, and hopefully, if everything goes well, I, uh, I see money come in uh, in the form of a royalty check every month. And, and by the way, uh, images can appear anywhere uh, because Getty has such a broad reach that, uh, that images can, can end up really anywhere in the world. A managed library means, means that I also take care of classification of tagging of images or is that still a work that you have to do? I do some very, very minor keywording. So um, for each image, I'm required to put in five keywords. Um, and, and a caption and uh, a location, and that's it. Everything else, uh, Getty handles. Oh, cool, because when I was uh, still doing stock photography, it was uh, mostly hold me back from doing more of it was all the work that was required for keywording, essentially. That was uh, too much for yeah. me to handle. And you... Yeah, it's, it's nice to have somebody else handle that. Good. Brian, when you say that you know that you had to submit images and then more images, how many images are we talking? It, it was several hundred. So each time they wanted several hundred more, and yeah. they want to make sure that you've got a nice body of work that you can t- continue to provide them with more work. 
right. you know, more, right. more great photography. Okay. Right. So they're vetting you and it's not just like, uh, some people think you might submit 20 images, but you're talking hundreds of images. So it's a lot of work. Exactly. They, they want to make sure that, that there's a, a body of work, uh, and, and a consistency of work because they want, uh, they want their photographers to be submitting, uh, high quality images on an ongoing basis. Is there a specific set of, uh, locations or subjects or styles that is uh, more requested nowadays? We get communications from Getty about uh, trends as far as that goes. Um, I can't tell you specifically what, what those would be because Getty, Getty covers, uh, they cover everything, uh, fashion, sports, politics, uh, travel, uh, everything. So it, it sort of depends on what the channel is. Overall, I would say that they 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 like seeing uh, people in images of, of of people doing things, and 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 in the best of both worlds, they would be model released. They don't have to be, but they would prefer that. Do you typically ask for a model release from your subjects? <laughs> well, it's tough. Uh, I mean, especially with the kind of uh, international work that I do. Um, if if I can, I do. Uh, but often it's it's just not it's just not possible. What I'll do um, uh, to try to to try to make that a little easier is if I've in, uh, engaged the services of a guide or a fixer, um, I'll have them sign a auto release and I'll stick them in my images as the as the as the person um, because it's just very difficult, especially when you're dealing with great differences in culture and language. Um, people, it, it's just hard to approach people and get them to sign a model release. I mean, that's, they may not even be able to read. Uh, I have model releases that are, um, Getty can furnish model releases in just about any, any language you can think of. But even then, um, even the concept of a model release is lost on people, um, when you're in places like the third world. Do you know anything about these model release apps that are out? Are they legit? Do you know if they you know, hold water. Have you heard of them? I don't know. I, I, I use the model release that Getty provides me. So, um, I know that there are apps you can use and people can sign with their finger right on, right on the, uh, the screen of your phone. Uh, but I, I haven't had any experience with those. Yeah. I'd, I'd heard that, uh, that they may not really be legit, but I'm I'm not sure about that. But that was the crazy thing is, uh, every, and, and this is why I'm glad that I'm with, with Getty, uh, Every country has its own law about about image use. So the the wording of of a of a model release may work in the United States, but it may not work in France, which has very very different model release laws. Well, that uh, you you talked about using uh, local fixers. How important do you think that is to to your photography, to your access to uh, the the locals and experiences that you may or may not find on your own? Talk to us about that. Well, I, I think it's it's critical. Um, when I travel in a in place like Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it can be difficult to know where to go. Uh, and even if you know where to go, often you need kind of an intermediary to kind of um, introduce you into uh, something you're trying to experience. So, so having a local help you uh, do those things I, I think is is critical when we do our tours in Southeast Asia we always use uh, the best 
uh, fixtures we, we can we can get. Um, they are invaluable in getting our customers uh, to have the kinds of experiences that that they uh, that they've traveled so far to have. Um, just for uh, the benefit of those like me uh, that are not American or not English, native English speakers, <laughs> uh, can you explain exactly what a fixer is? Because I was introduced to the term actually quite recently, and I, and I didn't know. And I had to look it up, and the first result I found on Google was uh, something like uh, uh, peddler of illegal items and stuff like that. So <laughs> I'm sure that's a different meaning. So <laughs> you want to explain yeah. to those well, who are not familiar uh, with that? Yeah, the, the... We only use those guys sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the kidding. definition of a fixer, I guess, is a... Is a uh, I'm not sure that there's a, a very accurate, specific definition because they do so many different things. They're more than an, uh, a, a, an introducer of people. They are more than uh, a translator. They are more than a um, uh, fixer of problems. They do all of those things. Uh, they handle getting you into places. They handle any, um, oh, how should I say, uh, inconsistencies that may come up with the police that may need to be fixed. Uh, mm -hmm. They handle interactions with drivers. They, uh, they manage the porters, uh, all that stuff. They do, do it you, all. How do you find a fixer? Is there a fixers association? Is there an Airbnb for fixers? <laughs> um, Ralph, you, you find lots of fixers. You answer that question. Yeah, well, I always work with a local tour operator in the destination, and they either are the fixer or they uh, provide the fixers. But a fixer is just that. It's someone who fixes problems if there are any. Uh, again, they provide translation, cultural knowledge, get, get us into places that we may never uh, be able to get into as a foreigner or that we would never even know about in the first place. Um, you know, there, there's different levels of fixers too, because you could just hire a local person as a guide. Um, most places, most countries have uh, associations where they, or they need to be vetted, they need to be licensed. Uh, there are, I'm sure, ways to, to hire people illegally, but uh, I don't do that. So uh, they get us into places we would never find on our own and uh, provide translation and cultural information that is uh, absolutely essential to, uh, to, to, to scouting a place and bringing a group back. Yeah, awesome information. I mean, even myself, I wasn't, I was only dimly aware of the, of the importance of having a fixer. So thanks to you both for, for explaining it. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know when people travel on their own, I think it's it can be a lot less expensive than you might think. So it uh, can really make the difference between a good trip and a great trip, uh, even if you just hire someone for a day. Oftentimes, what I'll do is hire them the first full day that I'm in a place, and then I'll have that knowledge, uh, you know, that orientation to the place uh, for the rest of the, my time there. So you don't have to hire someone, you know, for 14 days necessarily, but you can get some really good information from the start and they kind of keep you out of trouble and help you with cultural issues that you may or may not be aware of. So uh, like Brian said, I think they're critical. Now I'll, I'll say that this is, this is pretty critical in, in the developing world. 
Now you go to a place like like France or Italy. I mean, certainly, I, I don't think you would you would need that that kind of a thing. The great utility, though, um, of, of a fixer is they keep other fixers away. <laughs> they keep other would be guides, vendors, harassers, hangers on. Um, they are very good at keeping those guys away. Yeah, yeah, and and like you say, they're, they're maybe more. Uh essential in the third third world or countries where the, the language is completely different. But, uh, you know, even if you go to a place like Italy or France and you don't speak the language, you know, having that local translation and cultural information, I think, is, is ideal. So speaking of uh, foreign destinations, Brian, I know you've got a, 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 an affinity for, for Cambodia. Tell us uh, why Cambodia. Of all the places I've photographed uh, in, in my life, and I've been to over 60 countries, um, Cambodia keeps coming up for me as one of my, my favorite destinations. It, it sort of hits all of my uh, needs uh, and wants as a, as a traveler and as a photographer. Uh, it has great food. It has a, a, a wonderful culture. It has a fascinating, albeit tragic history um it's it's very scenic there are some must 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 see locations within cambodia uh it's inexpensive and it's safe um and then the level of uh of um, not not harassment but the, the level of um of uh i guess uh anxiety for uh for a western traveler is very very low it's a great place to travel and photograph. And just to be clear, you, you said that it's inexpensive. And uh, also what people may not understand is that they use the U.S. dollar. So it's extremely convenient. So you go to an ATM and U.S. dollars come out, to, especially yeah. for U.S. travelers. It's, it's, it's the weirdest con- thing. Yeah, so you could choose to – because they do have their own currency, but they do. it's very they convenient. Do. For at least for U.S. travelers, because you know we we can you know tell exactly what something costs. But yeah, you go to an ATM and U.S. dollars come out, so or you bring your own U.S. dollars and they work just fine. Uh, I I think it's one of my top countries for sure. Again, for all those same reasons, the food, the people are just just friendly off the charts. Um, um, they're you know super smiley, very open to helping you. And uh, very open to being photographed. So I've gotten some of my best images in Cambodia. Yeah, I love uh, photographing people. And so that's really one of the reasons that I love Cambodia so much, Um, especially for people who are uncomfortable asking uh, strangers if they could take their portrait. Uh, Cambodia is one of those locations that uh, just about everyone says yes. Just about everybody. If you if you spend a day in Cambodia and you ask a hundred people, may I take your your photograph? Ninety eight of them will say yes, and the other two uh, probably because they're late for a meeting or something. <laughs> yeah, and no, they would feel really bad about it. <laughs> Aside from people and uh, places like Angkor Wat, I mean, it's very very popular nowadays. So, and it's also very cliched shots from Angkor Wat. They look like uh, all pretty much the same. So, uh, I would like to ask uh, one, how do you avoid the cliches? Or do you take cliche, or I mean, do you need to take the 
traditional, the typical Angkor Wat photo? Does it still uh, interest agencies like Getty or Lonely Planet or so on? How, how do you for me, approach for that, me, that kind of subject? For me, I try to avoid the cliche shots um, because, well, there's no economic value in yet another sunrise shot of, of Angkor Wat. Um, I, I try to find uh, different ways of showing uh, iconic, uh, iconic monuments. It would be the same way I would approach um, any, any monument that's very, very well known, like, uh, like the Eiffel Tower or the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa uh, near where you are. Um, it's just trying to find different angles. Uh, what I find uh, works well is using the monument as a backdrop to some story unfolding in front of it. So you can make that story be anything, children playing, someone working in a field, a vendor selling something, and in the background, you have this, this wonderful monument. And so I find that that's a useful way of, of changing up a scene so that the monument is in the background and so you, you still can recognize what it is, but the story going on is, is different. When we lead photography tours, though, to a place like Angkor Wat, our customers want to get that iconic image of Angkor Wat at sunrise. And I totally don't blame them. It's a wonderful must, uh, must photograph uh, thing to do. So we ensure that, um, that we get our customers in the right place at the right time to make those iconic shots. I think uh, cliches are cliches for a reason. You know, they're, they're popular for a reason. Uh, I think uh, I, I get the postcard shot while I'm standing right there, but I'm always looking for a different way to approach it. Maybe it's a reflection in a puddle or uh, the bumper of a car or, like you say, uh, you know, using it in the background or some non-traditional way. But while you're standing right there, why not get the postcard shot as well? Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and our clients are looking – those are the things that they've seen. So I think they, they look for those in addition to and, – and our job is to try to help them to, uh, you know, what I call think outside the camera, to, to, to try to see things a little bit differently. Yeah, I like to – I remember uh, at least a couple of shots uh, of images I've seen, I've seen of Steve McCurry taken at the Taj Mahal which is another very, very popular location. And uh, he managed to, to show it in a different light. With, uh, I've got this one in front of me with somebody doing something in, a, in the water where the water is reflecting the Taj Mahal or another one with a steam uh, locomotive engine and with the Taj Mahal in the background. I mean, that's, uh, that's probably the way. What you are referring to, trying to find a different subject in the context, in the scene of something that is really recognizable and popular. And I think it's important, too, to understand that, you know, someone like Steve McCurry or uh, even I get a chance to go back to these places over and over again. But you go back to a place 10 or 12 or 15, 20 times, uh, you're going to see it in a lot of different lights with many different subjects, times of day. You've got time to do that. But if you're just in a place for a day or two, chances are uh, it, it can be difficult to go beyond that postcard shot. But uh, being able to come back over and over again in different weather and lighting conditions with and without people, et cetera, 
um, is, is a luxury that uh, not many of us have. Yes, there are, it's not like every day you find a steam engine <laughs> passing in front of the Taj Mahal with two people in front of it. And, well, maybe Steve McCurry was able to conjure up <laughs> a steam engine at that precise moment and with that light. And so He's on. very good at that. He's very mm-hmm. good at seeing the scene. Yeah, you have. Um, you know, I do. Him, I do. Right? I spent. Uh, I spent two weeks with Steve uh, just this past uh, June. Uh, he and I and uh, several other photographers uh, spent two weeks in in uh, Ethiopia. So, tell us about that experience uh, working with one of the masters. Yeah. So, um, uh, I think it's important to to sharpen one's skills, uh, even as a professional. And so, I had uh, Steve has been one of. A major influence on me. Uh, I learn a lot from looking at other photographers' work. I, I probably spend a, a lot of time, even today, looking at at other photographers' work who I who I, I, I really admire. Um, people like like Vivian Meyer or William Eggleston or Elliot Erwitt or uh, Robert Guano, uh, certainly uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson. Uh, and Steve uh, was running a workshop in, in Ethiopia, and uh, and I had an opportunity to uh, to join that workshop, and so we spent two weeks photographing in the Omo Valley. That's in the the southwestern part of uh, part of the country. Uh, it was like going back. I'm not I'm not exaggerating. Like going back five or ten thousand years. The, the way people live it was a very uh very interesting uh very photogenic uh part of the world a beautiful people a very ancient way of 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 life um working with steve was uh, an unbelievable experience um i learned i think i change just about everything about the way I address a camera. And I'm glad that I taught that I took this workshop now rather than say 10 years ago, because I think 10 years ago, I I wouldn't have been ready for it. This was not a workshop about how to, um, you know, uh, use exposure compensation or manually shoot or, I mean, it wasn't, it was very kind of nuance kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I, I learned a great deal about how I handle the camera, how I set the camera up, lots about, about light. Um, and it was just fantastic just to watch him work. Uh, even when I wasn't working with him one-on-one, uh, we'd be somewhere and I would just kind of sit back and I would watch him. Um, I would, I would watch him work. He, he doesn't take a lot of pictures. He stands around a lot and just observes and then you'll you'll kind of watch a little switch go off in his head, and uh, slowly the, the the cap of the lens will come off, and his sunglasses will come down, and he's almost like stalking like a cat. I mean, it's re- really really fabulous to, to watch. And then at the end of the workshop, we got to uh, we got to see all the images that that he took during the entire workshop, um, and it was it was really fascinating to. to you got to see his thought process as he as he uh, as he as he worked uh, his subjects. For me, uh, the most difficult part was was the image reviews because every night Steve would want to see 
the images that we had taken that day. And of course, you you want your <laughs> you want that photographer who you who you idolize so much to love your work, um, and to to show him everything you shot was uh, was was humbling. But uh, it was it was those one on one interactions where I learned the most because he didn't hold back. He told me when he liked something and when he didn't. Give us one or two other uh, tips that you learned from him and uh, his style. I would say the number one thing I learned from him was was structure. So I always thought I was pretty good at composition. Um, but this kind of goes beyond composition and, and goes much deeper into, in, in, into a frame. For example, I shot a, a Hamar woman... And there was, um, he had actually shot the same exact scene as me, maybe five inches to my right. And his image was so much better than mine. And we talked about structure, that the structure of his picture was so much better organized than mine. He didn't move anything in the picture. He moved his body to make everything more pleasing in the image. I always felt that it was the subject that I was shooting. That was the most important thing. When in actuality, there isn't a thing in the picture that's more important than anything else. Everything has to have its place. And I have to be looking for everything to make sure it's in its place. Painters put things in their paintings for a reason. They put them in the places where they appear for a reason. Um, the lighting on those things are there for a reason. And so as photographers, it's, it's our job, our very difficult job, to make sure that, that images have the proper structure. Yeah, and I've got to think that that's where his patience comes in and just waiting for those things to sort of fall into place, maybe moving around the scene a little bit to position. I, I call that manipulating the scene, moving around and watching things at different depths within the scene uh, change as you do that right right and he he is um a stickler about waiting for the right light so he would have his camera put away we'd all be out there like crazy people shooting and like the you know the worst light (laughs) possible we were just excited to be in ethiopia photographing um but steve would would really wait until the light was just right and another thing i learned from him is you don't need as much light as you think Low light right. photography is um, is uh, absolutely possible and for Steve preferred, especially with with today's high ISO capability cameras. So I'd, I'd have my camera put away, thinking there wasn't enough light, and Steve would come up to me and say, "What are you doing?" And I'd say, "Well, <laughs> there's not enough light," and he'd say, "Nonsense, let's go." <laughs> well, that's that's good to know. Very interesting, and yeah, I would um, in in a situation like that. I mean, with uh, w- without good light, I would snap away anyway, just because it's. I mean, it's not like I can go to Ethiopia every year, or so. Well, right, right, and and the, especially in Ethiopia, the the distances were were great between locations, and sometimes we wouldn't arrive uh, at a place until uh, noon, for example, and uh, you just kind of. Uh, it was kind of a fun challenge as a photographer to find locations within uh, bad light where you could take a good image. You had to really look for places where you could find diffused light or even use bad light to your advantage. And then if you're lazy, you can just convert to black and white and everything looks fine. 
<laughs> well, I know uh, we probably uh, need to get wrapped up here, huh, Hugo? Yeah, right. We are at about the half hour mark or even a little bit uh, beyond that, but um, it's great. I mean, it's some great uh, tips and information and uh, a lot of uh, useful information about those places and about to, how to get around, how to get the most out of those. So I would like to thank Brian for it's my pleasure for everything he provided today. Yeah, Brian, uh, do you have any final advice for uh, aspiring travel photographers that you'd like to impart on our audience real quick? Yeah, I, I have always found photography to be a solo pursuit. Um, it is very difficult to do serious photography when you're traveling with uh, your family, for example. Now, my wife is very patient, and um, uh, she loves to travel internationally just like I do. Uh, but her patience does sometimes wear thin when I want to take the uh, 20th picture of um, – of a of a a pot or or you know just something on the side of the road. I just kind of get I kind of get uh, excited about about something because the light is just right and I, I really want to work a subject. Um, so I find that 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 doing photography as a solo pursuit really um, helps me work my subjects to the depth that I want to. That being said, uh, working in a group of like-minded photographers. I think is even better than working by yourself because now you've got people who want to take 30 pictures of that pot with you. And then you can kind of work, you can learn from each other and, and do image reviews at night and, and talk with each other about what works and what doesn't and see what other people are doing. So working in a, in a group of photographers, like-minded photographers in an interesting place, I think is one of the best ways to, uh, to improve your photography. And that's why I'm, I'm so excited about leading photography tours because we do just that. We spend meaningful time uh, in wonderful locations with photographers who, who um, share the same level of passion uh, for photography. Well, thanks again, Brian. Really appreciate your input and uh, your being on the show. Where can people find out more about you and your photography? Uh, they can visit my website at www.briancrookshank.com. That's B-R-I-A-N-C-R-U-I-C-K-S-H-A-N-K. We'll certainly put links to that in the show notes so that people can uh, see your work. Thank you. Uh, once again, appreciate your, your being on the show. Anything else, Lugo? No, uh, it's been great again. And so many thanks. Thank you very much. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Anytime. Cheers. Bye. So long, guys. Bye-bye.